Did you ever have a situation when the team doesn't trust one of its members? This episode will discuss first why it happens, what the impact it has on team performance, and what you can do about it, all the way to the dreaded decision of removing this member from the team. But I'm going to give you several other alternatives before it gets to that. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? Let's start with why this person is on the team to start with. And maybe the question is, why did you put them on the team? One of the main reasons is typically that that person may have a very unique technical competence or technical skill that very few people have. And uh, if, if you remove that person from the team or did not put them on the team, you would be missing a very specific skill, a very specific competence, a very specific role on the team that you would not be able to fulfill otherwise. So that would be one reason. The other is you just had a vacancy and you just had to take someone. You know, right now in August of 2022, we're still in the great resignation uh, where we have a lot more vacancies than people willing to work. And you just needed to fill that vacancy and, uh, you know, you're going to put whoever you can. Maybe there is a deadline and, and you just had to put somebody on the team right now. Doesn't matter uh, if the team likes them or, or don't like them, but you just you have to put them. Maybe that person has been on the team for a while. You already know that the team doesn't trust them. You already know how they affect team dynamics, but you can't fire them. And there could be many reasons why you can't fire them or why you won't fire them. Uh, one of them could be that, that you're afraid of litigation. And, and there are other reasons that I'll talk about later uh, when, I talk, when I talk about maybe needing to make that decision and remove, maybe not fire someone from the company, but at least remove them from the team to put them in another role in the company. And, and finally, there is the, uh, the devil that you know. You know, we get used to to even bad things. We and and it's amazing, and you see that a lot in cases of uh, domestic abuse, uh, where spouses or kids they stay in a very harmful environment because that's the only environment that they know. It's the devil that you know, and and you sometimes stick with the devil you know, or prefer the devil the devil you know over. I don't know if I would call it an angel that you don't know. Uh, knowledge and uh, uh, feeling comfortable with what you know is is very important. And we're afraid of uh, uncertainty of someone we don't know. So those those are probably the reasons. And maybe you can come up with other reasons of why you even have this person on the team to start with. How bad can it be to have, you know, one 
uh, bad apple on, on a team? How bad can it really be? I mean, it's just one of several people and maybe the others are very trustworthy. How bad can it be? Well, I want to read to you a paragraph from uh, the Book of Trust, and it's it's really only in the third edition and beyond uh, in the future. And, and it's about the bad apple phenomenon. The bad apple phenomenon was studied quite extensively. Will Phelps, an associate professor in the School of Management at the University of New South Wales, conducted a study of decision-making in groups. And by the way, in the Book of Trust, uh, in that paragraph, you can find uh, the link to the original study. In his experiment, students were divided into groups of four and were given a task to complete. As motivation, the teams were promised a $100 award per person for the winning team. In some of the teams, an actor was embedded without their knowledge. The actors demonstrated one of three behaviors. Depressive pessimist, who constantly complains about the nature of the task, doubling the team's, uh, uh, doubting the team's ability to win. The jerk, who overly criticizes team members' ideas. And the slacker, who demonstrated an I-don't-care attitude. Phelps found that teams that had any of those actors performed 30 to 40% worse, but also that the other team members, instead of ignoring that bad apple, they began to adopt his behavior. The experiment found that the worst team member is the best predictor of how any team performs no matter how creative or productive the other team members were. Did, did you hear that last sentence, that last statement? Let me repeat that. What, what they found in the experiment, what, what Phelps found in the experiment is, and this, these are his words, the worst team member is the best predictor of how any team performs. So that member, even though it's only one of many, will drag the entire team down. And that's called the bad apple phenomenon. I want to add some of my own survey uh, findings and, and the, the correlation with, with team member behavior. What I found was that in high trust environments, teams are 71% more likely or more willing to hold what I call a constructive disagreement. Team dynamics were one of the top two factors that I found when I did my doctoral study on team creativity and productivity. So team creativity and productivity depends on the team dynamics and their ability to hold constructive disagreement. To, to explain what I mean by constructive disagreement, constructive disagreement is where you can argue, where, where you can debate, you can passionately disagree, but still at the end, you, you're, you're all trying to reach the same, the, the, the better, the, 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 the better outcome for the, the overall team. You, you are really still focused on the outcome, on, on the goals, on the objectives, and not on attacking each other or, or anything like that. The other type, so there are two other types, uh, and, and I like to look at the relationship between disagreement or conflict and um, 
I'll call it both creativity and productivity and, and probably other uh, features of, of a team. Look, think of it as an upside down U, U-shaped curve. Okay, in the middle, the optimal, the top of that hill, of that upside down U, is your ability to hold constructive disagreement. And that has the biggest positive impact on team creativity and productivity. If you keep going to the right, that's when the level of conflict goes up. And when I say goes up, what I really mean is that instead of being professional, it becomes personal. Instead of being passionate, it becomes emotional. So now you're having personal attacks. Now we're going after a zero-sum game and not a win-win. It's not when everybody contributes their perspective. It's I have, if in order for me to win, you must lose. And, and everything becomes a personal attack. Everything becomes emotional. Everything becomes irrational. And obviously, the level of creativity and productivity and other good things goes dramatically down. There's the other side, and this is a very low level of conflict, very low level of disagreement. Uh, This is what I call the politically correct disagreement. This is where instead of saying what you really think or feel, what you say is what you think the other person wants to hear, and and you try to avoid as much as you can, uh, avoid that, that kind of disagreement or disagreement altogether. Uh, So I call it the politically correct disagreement. And this is when you have the meeting before the meeting, the meeting after the meeting, just not the meeting during the meeting. Because during the meeting, you try to avoid as much conflict as possible. You're afraid of that conflict. And and you'll see why in a second. I actually already kind of told you why. Because there is no trust. Uh, And so what I found was that when I asked in one of my surveys about people's willingness to hold conflict or disagreement, and I gave them five options, and three of them were, I don't think that uh, disagreements are productive. I'm trying to avoid them altogether. I don't feel comfortable disagreeing. When you have low trust, people chose these three options 10 times more, 61% of the time compared to only 6% of the time in low trust environments compared to high trust environments. And as you can imagine, instead of only 40% of the time or less than 40% of the time where they would go with, uh, yes, I embrace conflict, Uh, I I can argue and still be friends, I can passionately argue and still be friends, Uh, that was only less than 40% of the time in low trust environment compared to 94% of the time in high trust environment. And overall, if, if I average everything, uh, what I found was that in high trust environment, you are 71% more likely to hold a constructive disagreement than in low trust environment. If I break constructive disagreement down to its components, uh, in my opinion, there are three components. One is vulnerability. Vulnerability Uh, Not necessarily in telling personal, very personal uh, things about yourself as it is uh, your willingness to ask stupid questions and not worry about what people are going to say about you. Your willingness to suggest stupid ideas and not worry that somebody in that meeting is going to go out and, uh, you know, tell others uh, what kind of stupid questions or stupid ideas you bring to the table. And and I'm going to get back to vulnerability uh, pretty soon. So... uh, 
the the willingness to be vulnerable is 240% higher in in my surveys 240% higher in high trust environment than in low trust environment so when somebody described a high trust environment they also described willingness to be vulnerable 240% more 106% more willing more likely to give direct unfiltered feedback you know, the kind of feedback the other person needs and not what you think they want to hear. And 76% higher receptivity to feedback, willingness to get this feedback and benefit from it, from feedback that's given to you. So, you know, we're starting with creativity and productivity or, or performance, team performance. We realize that that depends on the ability to hold constructive disagreement then we realize that that depends on your willingness to be vulnerable, give feedback, and be receptive to feedback. And those all heavily depend on trust. I want to give you a scenario. Imagine that you're on a team with four other members. So you're a team of five. You've known those members for a while. You get along. You got over. You had fights and then you got over them. And uh, you're at a level of trust that was built over a long period of time. And uh, all the six components of uh, trustworthiness are there. Uh, you think that they're competent. They think that you are competent. Uh, you have uh, personality compatibility, which, again, doesn't mean that you're all the same, but you're all complementary to one another. Uh, the fairness and symmetry is there. Uh, the contributions to the interaction is positive. And, and it doesn't mean that you're just saying nice things, but you, you're no, there's no BS. Let's let just leave it at that. And, and you feel that others care about you. You care about them. You spend a lot of time, high intimacy, which means a lot of it is face-to-face -face in person. So you trust the other four members of that team. Are you willing to be vulnerable with them? Well, I already told you that, that you're going to be 240% more likely, more willing to be vulnerable with them because you trust them. Now we're throwing in a new member. Somebody needs to fill a role. We have a vacancy. A new member joins the team. Do you trust them? Well, you know, I, I can look at the fifth law of trust and say the trust is... Um, transferable. So if somebody who you trust told you that this is a good person to have on the team, then, then you trust them to some extent. I mean, how, how open are you going to be with them if you just met them for the first time? Really doesn't matter how much other people told you that this is a good person to have. You're still going to hold things back. You're not going to be willing to be as vulnerable or give that person feedback, enough feedback. And in one of the future episodes, I'm going to talk about the relationship between feedback, um, trust, and time, uh, really. So, uh, and how receptive are you going to be for feedback from them uh, when you don't know them very well? And by the way, they're probably going to hold back and until they, they feel more comfortable with you. So here's what happens. A new member comes in. Even if that member checks all the boxes and, and everything, you still, you, you don't trust them enough. You don't trust them as much as you will over a long period of time, if you knew them for a long period of time. So your trust in them is limited. 
And because of that, you're not willing to be as vulnerable. Including with the other four members that are in the same room with you. So team dynamics of this team that just became moved from being a team of five to a team of six, the dynamics slowed down. The dynamics declined. We moved a little left. I, I'm not going to say that we moved right on that uh, uh, graph between uh, uh, that, that has on the x x axis uh, has uh, uh, the level of conflict. I'm, I'm not saying we're going to move right and, and this is becoming personal, emotionally rational. No, but we're going to move to the left. So we're going to hold back. So the entire dynamic goes down if there is a team member that you don't trust enough. But here's the deal. Uh, the way I described it to you right now, I said that you don't trust them yet. I said that you don't trust them, even though somebody told you that this is a good member to have on the team, that they're really great and uh, and you're going to trust them. Trust me. Uh, but there could be other reasons why you don't trust them. You may not trust them for other reasons, and that is their behavior, what they do, the fact that they talk behind your your back, the fact that they don't interact very well, the fact that they take everything personal, become emotionally rational, they don't listen, everything to them is a win-win, uh, is a, uh, I'm sorry, a zero-sum game and not win-win. So there are other reasons, there could be other reasons why you don't trust them, other than I just don't know them well enough to trust them. So we're back to this is exactly the same as Phelps' bad apple phenomenon, which is one member of the team can drag the entire dynamics of the team down. What should you do? When I ask what should you do, I'm making a big assumption, and that is, that you are in a position to do something. So maybe you're the team leader, maybe you're a general manager, the CEO, the HR manager, but you're in a position to do something. And when I say something, this could be all the way to removing that new member or that le least trusted member uh, from that team. But before you do that, th there is a prerequisite. And the prerequisite is before you address trust issues on the team, you have to be trusted by that team enough to make that decision or, or to address the trust issue. So you have to first work on yourself and make sure that you're not the team member that the others don't trust. You're not the team member that, that drags down team dynamics and performance. But let's assume that you are uh, trusted and uh, you are in a position to handle it. So the first question to ask is, is that team member not trusted by anyone on that team? Or is it just a one-on-one -on -one situation? So this is where you do uh, a kind of a matrix of trust. Uh, and you want to kind of get a sense of how every member of the team trusts all the other members of the team. And if that member of uh, that team member is not trusted by anyone, then you're going to see that they get very low scores, trust trustworthiness scores by everyone or almost everyone. Let, let's just say significantly lower than the average trustworthiness score of uh, all the others. So 
I built the tool. It's still, I, I wouldn't even call it a beta. I'll call it an alpha. It's very preliminary. I call it Trust Tracker 360. Uh, you can find it on my website, uh, yoramsalman.com, under resources. So yoramsalman.com slash resources. Um, you will see uh, Trust Tracker 360 is one of them. If only one member has an issue with this other team member who's not trusted, so only one member doesn't trust it, it's a different way to handle it. That's You're going to have to take these two out and figure it out and then decide if this is something that's recoverable or it's not recoverable, but it's just between the two of them. And yes, it does have to go away because otherwise you do have you still have a performance problem on the team. For now, I'm going to assume that everybody has a problem with this team member. And uh, we'll go to the first question. The first question is why? Why is that member not trusted by, and again, we're assuming by anyone on anybody else on that team. One reason would be that it's simply that this is a new member to the team. There was not enough time and intimacy with the team. Uh, time and intimacy are the accelerators. So if, if you think about that, when you throw in a new member on the team, first there is the who they are. What do we know about them? And, and by the way, that's something that you should work on uh, when you introduce somebody to the team. Don't just throw somebody on the team, but make sure that they know who they are, who that person is. Think about those components of competence, personality compatibility, and symmetry or fairness. So whatever you can throw in, symmetry and fairness, and I'll, I'll talk about that as, as the next bullet, but uh, at least personality and uh, compatibility is something that, you know, maybe you run some personality tests, uh, they're Myers-Briggs or anything else. Uh, maybe when you introduce them to the team, first of all, uh, do that in a meeting where they get to ask this new member questions. They get to ask uh, the existing team members questions. They get to know each other. Then there is the, so, so this is kind of the baseline. The baseline is what do we know about this new team member? And, and it's up to you to make sure that they know enough uh, at the moment that you introduce this new team member uh, to the team. Then, there is what they do. And you can't control what they do during uh, every interaction with the team, how they behave, the level of BS, the level of empathy. You, you can't control that. that. That's going to have significant impact on the trust or, or their trustworthiness. Time and intimacy, though, are the accelerators. So um, you can wait until enough time had passed and they start trusting this person. Or you can just address it, just increase the time and intimacy, force more meetings, longer meetings, force them to meet in person and not communicate over email when, especially when you don't know that the team member, there is a higher, a much higher probability of uh, making wrong assumptions, misinterpreting, reading between the lines, what's not there. So drive the team towards stronger time, more time, longer time, more time, more frequency of meetings, and higher intimacy. In asymmetry, 
there are things that are within your control and things that are not. So if there is some kind of an organizational asymmetry, you know, this person is at a certain level while others are at a different level, there there does tend to be, even not to a great extent, but some, to some extent, a... Uh, a limitation on how much you trust a member that especially if they're at a uh, higher i would even say a lower position than you are if they're a lower position a lower job grade you might look at them differently and trust them less because they're not you know at your level if they're at a higher level you may not trust them because you know you're worried about uh their contacts at higher management and maybe you should think twice before you say something uh, if there's a compensation or what they get from the company and it doesn't have to be compensation it can be access to resources or, or other things again you might not trust somebody who doesn't have enough you might not trust somebody who has a lot more than you the one that's not within your control is what do you do about asymmetry of contribution? What do you do when this member contributes much less than the other members? By the way, I would even worry about if they contribute dramatically more than the others because you don't want to be the, the person that feels bad that one member works twice as hard as you do. So you're kind of distancing yourself a, a little from them. And, and you may even help isolate them from the team because they overwork. I mean, they, they make all of us look bad by how hard they work. So you really want to get to that point of, of having symmetry of contribution. So if that happens, if that other member uh, works much less than the rest of the team, this is dramatically going to impact uh, how much they don't trust that member. Or if they dramatically work harder than, than everybody else, uh, then you may want to have a conversation with them and just tell them, you know, try, try and stay within the same level of contribution that other members of the team um, are contributing. How about competence? What do you do if they're just not competent enough in uh, in what they do? Now, competence, I, I don't want you co to confuse that with professionalism or, or the, their ability to do a specific task. Uh, competence is made of a lot of different things. And, you know, I'll, I'll remind you again that scene from uh, the movie Zero Dark Thirty when uh, the Navy SEALs are sitting around this uh, uh, horseshoe game. They're playing horseshoes. One of the Navy SEALs asks another one uh, on the team, uh, do you really believe that we're going after uh, Bin Laden? And uh, the other one says, uh, yeah, I do. And the first one asks, what convinced you? And the second one points to Maya, the CIA agent, with both his hands and says, her confidence. So confidence, not overconfidence, confidence indicates competence. And that's only one example. There are a lot of examples that would indicate the other person is competent. What do you do if they're not? What, what do you do if the component that prevents the other members of the team from trusting this one is because they don't think that they're competent? Well, first, uh, there is maybe it's a misconception and we need to clear it up. 
clear it up. Maybe it's not a misconception. Maybe they are just not competent to the level the team needs them to be competent. So the first question here is going to be, can this be fixed? Is there any training? Is there any mentoring? Is there anything that you can do to get that member of the team to be competent enough? Because otherwise, they're just not competent enough. Now, uh, I, I had a uh, an episode where I talked about uh, Simon Sinek's uh, whole visual of competence versus, or, or he calls it performance versus trust. And I'm not going to repeat that except for, to, for saying that competence is part of trust. It's not something that you balance against trust. Competence is, the, is part of trust. And you're not going to trust a pilot that doesn't know how to land a plane enough or not good enough, not competent enough in landing a plane. You're not going to trust a Navy SEAL team sniper who can't hit anything from 300 yards or beyond if he's the sniper. And you're not going to trust a surgeon that has a higher than average patient mortality rate. Those are all competence issues. Uh, So competence is important. Don't don't, uh, ignore it. If there is a competence issue, you need to fix it. If it's a perception issue, it's easier to fix. It's not a perception issue. Could be fixed or not, but you have to address it. Okay, I touched on the uh, what you do three components, uh, positivity, time, and uh, uh, intimacy. I touched on competence. I touched on symmetry, which leaves us with personality compatibility. So let's start with uh, what if there is a moderate level of personality incompatibility? First thing is you need to understand it. I mean, this could be something relatively benign. Uh, you know, somebody's a procrastinator. The other person is not a procrastinator. How do we deal with that? So the first part is that you have to understand it. Uh, and, and again, if you take a tool like uh, uh, Trust Tracker 360 that's available freely on my website, uh, at least at the time I recorded this, uh, this episode, uh, use a tool like this, do an assessment and see what is the personality incompatibility. Or, or, you know, just forget using a tool, just ask the team, what is it about the other person's personality, this, this team member's personality that is incompatible with yours? Understand it. The next, once you understand, sometimes it's just a matter of understanding it uh, that would help you resolve it. And, you know, I'll Take you through one of my stories. Again, uh, when I uh, worked in Texas Instruments, I remember that uh, I used to go to my boss and suggest ideas, different ideas. And uh, every time I would suggest something, I would start with the bottom line. You know, before I move on, I'm going to ask you, if I need to convince you with something, if I need you to make a decision and I need to convince you, would you rather me start with the bottom line first or start with an explanation, take you through my thought process and give you the bottom line next or last? And when I say with the bottom line first, I mean, I'm going to give you the bottom line and then I'm going to give you the rationale, but I'm going to start with the bottom line. 
So I went to my boss and I suggested something. And I started with bottom line first, because to me, you know, I, I like this is how I like to uh, to be told. I like to get the bottom line first because it gives me context. So if you're asking me for something, if you're trying to convince me with something, I need the context first. I need to know where you're going with this and then tell me how you got there. That's how I work. By the way, I did a survey and I found that 74% of people prefer the bottom line first, just like me. Great, I mean the majority. Three out of four people, but not four out of four people. 17% prefer that you start with the irrationale, take me through your thought process, and only at the end tell me what the bottom line is. That was how my boss was. By the way, 9% don't care. So my boss was like the second type. 17% of population, one in seven people, would like you to first take them through your thought process and only then at the end give them the bottom line and the and therefore. So... Every time I suggested something, it's like she developed an immediate allergic reaction to what I suggested. And it was really, really, really annoying. I can tell you that. It was annoying. And one day I just asked her, do you prefer, when I suggest something, when I'm asking you for something, do you prefer that I start with the bottom line, which is how I always do it, or do you prefer me to first take you through how my thought process and only give you the bottom line at the end? She says, the latter. Take me through your thought process. Let me reach the same conclusion that you did at the same time. Because when you start with the bottom line, I can see many, many reasons why this is a wrong thing to ask. This was it. So here's an interesting thing. If you take the fact that, or the fact, one of the outcome of one of my surveys that said that 74% like the bottom line first, 17% like it last, 9% don't care. Overall, what I found was that 74.5% of people, 74.8%, I'm sorry, let's just say 75%, are okay. Either one of them doesn't care or they're both the same. 75%. 25% are of, of combination of people are not okay. So you have one in four probability of not being compatible with the other person based on that little thing by itself. But here's the deal. As soon as I asked her and I realized that that's the issue, the issue is that she prefers me to take her through my thought process and give her the bottom line at the end, while I prefer to start with the bottom line because that's how I like to hear it and then give her the rationale, that was an incompatibility. Once I realized that was an incompatibility, I changed how I talked to her. By the way, you know, whenever you do one of those uh, personality uh, uh, assessments, whether it's Myers-Briggs or DISC or uh, Enneagram, which is my daughter Maya's preference, uh, or any of the others, one of the things that comes out of it is when you realize that you're one type and the other person is the other type, one of the things they teach you is, and this is how you communicate to a person from that type. Maybe that's the issue. As long as you understand it, you assess it, you understand it, you can change how you behave. 
Or, alternatively, you can just realize that you can live with it. Now I understand. It's not that the other person on our team is a bad person. I, I can understand. I can, I can live with this. Maybe what you do is you change roles. You know, the other person, um, you know, Pat- Patrick Lencioni did uh, something that's called the uh, Working Genius uh, Study. Uh, not study. Uh, actually, I think that's that's also his new book. Um, and he has those six types. Uh, and uh, the types depend on really the... Uh, time in the life cycle of a project some people are for example i i, I did i took that uh, test uh, that assessment and i found that one of my working geniuses is being an inventor i'm the person that comes up with ideas and one of my working frustrations i think was uh I don't remember how he called it, but but essentially it's the executioner, the person that actually executes. I'm not great at, at executing. I'm very good at coming up with ideas. Well, that's a different type. And maybe I am someone who is very good at execution and you're putting me in a role that requires me to come up with ideas. Maybe I'm someone who's really great with coming up with ideas, which is me, and you're putting me in a role that uh, requires me to be an executioner. And that's not my type. So uh, maybe what you do, maybe the way to address it, now that you know what the issue is, what the incompatibility is, uh, you change roles. So I refer to all of those as moderate personality incompatibility. And really the way to address that is first to know, to understand it, to, to realize. Two, to either change how we behave in, in a way, you know, that's not too hard. It wasn't that hard for me to every time I, I would talk to my boss, I would just take her through my thought process and and give her the bottom line at the end didn't didn't require too much of me really other than be uh aware of this is how i communicate with her while with others i would communicate in a different way not too big a deal or or change roles so have a different role in the project so those are all moderate personality incompatibilities that can be addressed you can fix that you can fix the level of trust in the team even due to personality incompatibility as long as it's moderate, as I described here. But what if it's not moderate? What if this is a significant personality incompatibility? And I'm going to take it another step, and that it's a significant value incompatibility. We don't share values, or I would say we have opposite values on something. And by the way, this might even be something that's completely unrelated from work or unrelated to work, such as political positions. I mean, you would have to argue, what does my political position have to do with what I do at work? We got to a point where our culture has embraced such a political divisiveness, a political polarization, that this gets into work. And there was a study, and I don't remember the numbers, but the uh, political polarization is starting to find, to, to get a stronger foothold at the workplace and affect work. So I'm not assuming that this is, uh, oh, we just don't know what the other person's values are. I'm, I'm talking about we know that there is a value incompatibility. 
When I did uh, one of my first studies on trust, I tried to correlate the different components. This is, by the way, how I ended up with those six components, because those were the six, uh, six groups of components that really correlated with trust independently. It's called factor analysis in, in statistics. Uh, and uh, one of them I called value uh, shared values. That one had the highest correlation with the level of trust, 86%. 86% correlation between shared values and trust. What do you do if there is a very strong, not moderate personality incompatibility, a strong personality incompatibility, specifically focused on values that are opposite, important enough to the different people to the point where they just don't trust this other person. There's only one thing that you have to do. You have to remove someone from the team. And if everybody on the team, remember, that's how we started the analysis. If everybody on the team does not trust this member, you have to remove this member from the team. Let's talk about the dreaded decision. Why do I call it the dreaded decision? Be because the decision to remove someone from a team or from the company is a hard decision to make. First of all, it's it's un uncomfortable. It's awkward. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, people depend on their jobs and, and now you're removing them. Uh, even if you only remove them from the team and, and you keep them in another position in the company, they don't feel good about it. Maybe it's for their benefit, but they don't feel good about that. Maybe you're, and, and not to mention that when they don't feel good about it, you don't feel good about it. This is, I mean, did you ever fire someone? Did you ever remove someone from a team? It's not an easy decision to make. It's a hard, it's awkward. It, in so many cases, what we prefer to do is just kick the can down the road. Let somebody else deal with that. I'll move on. Maybe what you're maybe the reason you're not doing it is because you're afraid of the legal liability that comes with it. Because you know, guess what? Uh, we're a very litigious society now. When I did my 2018 TED talk, I talked about the fact that 1.7 percent over 300 billion dollars a year, 1.7 uh, percent of our GDP, more than 300 billion a year, and I'm just talking about the U.S. is spent on civil litigation. Well, it's only four years later, and now it's 2.3% and more than $400 billion. 2.3% uh, of our GDP is spent on civil litigation. This is only going to go higher. We're not making decisions like removing somebody from the team or from the company because we're afraid of the legal liability. And you know what? It is an earthquake to the team itself. It is. When you remove a member, even if it's a member, well, obviously, it's a much, much smaller uh, earthquake, uh, much lower on the Richter scale, if that is a team a member that nobody on the team trusted, but it still is an earthquake. So it's an earthquake to the team. So I, I understand. I understand why this is a hard decision. I understand why you're trying to avoid that decision. But I want you to know one thing. You are weighing the team performance 
against this awkward, uncomfortable feeling of removing a member of the team. After you've gone through everything I told you, I gave you plenty of opportunities to identify reasons why this team member is not trusted as much as maybe they should that can be fixed. We talked about increasing time and intimacy. We talked about uh, moderate personality incompatibilities, understanding them, resolving them. We talked about symmetry. But when it comes to significant value incompatibility that just cannot be overcome, cannot be resolved, you are weighing the performance of the team. You're going to have a team that performs with low trust. And I already told you what the, the outcome of that is. I, I only told you some of the outcome because low trust also affects uh, the uh, engagement the level of stress, job satisfaction, willingness of other members of the team to stay with the company. It affects many, many things. It affects 45%. So one of the studies that I found says that uh, when you have high trust, projects will end up on time, on budget, and as required, 45% of the time more. You're, you're affecting all of that because you have to make this, this decision that you really dread. And I understand why you dread that. But I want you to consider one more thing. If you are keeping that member who's not trusted with the team, you are not doing them any favor because they are in an environment where people don't trust them. They will be affected by it as well. So if there's one last thing that I want you to remember is not only that, when you don't make that decision, when you keep an untrusted team member on the team, not only that you're compromising the team performance because of your own, you know, I don't know if I should go as far as say selfishness because you want to avoid something that's uncomfortable, awkward or liability or whatever. But I want you to remember that you're not doing them a favor by keep keeping them on the team. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.